Well, good morning again. Um, we'll just jump right in. Um, we'll be looking at 1 John. We're going to continue on in there, so turn to 1 John. <coughs> We've been slowly working through it when I've had the opportunity to stand before you, and so we'll continue on there. Um, let's pray. Our Father God, we come to you and we thank you that we can be here this morning, gathered together, brothers and sisters in Christ, before your throne, looking at your word. We know that your spirit dwells with us. We thank you for that, and we know that through your spirit we understand your truth. Help us this morning, help me this morning, that we may see and hear and understand Christ as your truth come to this world. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so we'll jump right in. For some time we've been looking at what the Apostle John has told us in this first letter to Christian believers, his first epistle, and we've been impressed with the instruction and the care and the encouragement that he has for these people. He really loves them. He's a pastor to them. He repeatedly calls them by various endearing terms, such as children or little ones or beloved, and he has that pastor's heart for them, that pastor's care for them. And as he writes, he offers what he has to say with numerous repetitions and contrasts and he presents an ever-deepening picture, an ever-deepening understanding of who Christ is and also of who he and his readers are in Christ. And there's the old adage, repetition is the mother of learning. And throughout this letter, John's style is to circle around and repeat himself and deepen the statements that he's already made to make a statement then offer contrasts to it, and then go back and reemphasize the original idea to make the contrast clear and to give, give us a deeper understanding. He includes his readers in the group to which he and the other disciples belong, that group which is the church, those who profess the man Jesus as being both the Christ and the Son of God. And in the first few verses of chapter 1 of this letter, he has clearly defined the physical evidence the basis for this profound proclamation. So let's look at chapter 1, verse 1 of this first letter of John, and we'll read through chapter 2, verse 17. <clears throat> what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at, what we have touched with our hands, four things concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy, some translations say your joy, may be made complete. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 
But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, in other words, God and man, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. We're lying to ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother, loves his brother, abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, you young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. So, he starts out in verses uh, 1 through 4 of chapter 1, uh, saying, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fel- indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things so that your joy, our joy, may be complete. So John's writing to Christian believers, to the church, to the body of Christ, to remind them of this basic Christian doctrine. So far, in, in past messages, uh, we've learned about truths about who Jesus is, about who, Jesus, who John's readers are in Christ about tests that reveal whether a person who claims to be in the church really is a Christian, whether their faith in Jesus is true. 
John has presented what amounts to several tests of Christian faith. In the first part of chapter 2, first uh, couple sections of chapter 2, there are several tests of Christian action, what we previously called tests of Christian fruit. In verses 3 through 6 of chapter 2, there's the test of obedience to Christ, to keep his commandments, to walk as he walked. In verses 4 and 5 there, look at it quickly again. John says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. In verses 7 through 11, there was a test of love of others with the evidence that those who love their brother are abiding in the light, but those who hate their brother remain in the darkness. And these first two tests were positive tests. They were to-do tests. They were things that we should practice as Christians in our daily walk of life. Then in verses 15 through 17, John gave what what we've called a negative test, a test of things that Christians should not do. He says this, he says, do not love the world or the things of the world. He explained that the things of the world are not from the Father, but they're from the world, and that the world and its desires are passing away. They're temporary, they lead nowhere. And then he concluded with the thought, uh, the idea that the one who does God's will abides forever. We then summarize that idea of abiding forever as the mutual fulfillment of the Christian believer remaining faithful in and to Christ, while at the same time, Christ remains faithful in and to the believer. It is the eternality of Christ's Christ's salvation of us and our faith in him. As we think about these three tests of Christian fruit, obedience to Christ in our daily walk, love of others as we abide in the light, and keeping ourselves from the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life in this world, essentially a test to stay away from idolatry, we need to realize that John is not calling us to perfection. He does not expect us to be sinless or perfect after we receive Christ. We know this because he first told us in verses 8 through 10 of chapter 1, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, you may argue that John is simply talking about our past sins, in other words, our sin prior to faith in Christ, But he uses the word walk in verses 6 through 7 of chapter 1, which indicates our general, typical pattern of life. He says there in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with, with one another, God and man, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now the Greek word there for walk is the first-person plural verb, peripatomen, which means to tread all around. In other words, to walk at large. Figuratively, it is to live, to deport oneself, or to follow. And so he's making a statement about the usual pattern of a Christian's life versus the usual pattern or general pattern of the non-believer. He's not saying that Christian lives, that Christians live a life of sinless perfection, but of typical obedience and love. 
Also, in verses uh, 1 and 2 of chapter 2, John clearly admits the possibility that we may still sin once we become Christians, once we have professed Christ as our Savior. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Not that everybody's saved, but that Christ is the only available propitiation. We don't propitiate for ourselves. We still sin at times, but our general pattern of life as Christians is one of faith and obedience and love, and Christ is the propitiation. He's the payment for our sin. So while John, John does call us to obedience and love and to refrain from the world and its desires, he does not call us to perfection. However, in verse 5 of chapter 1, John did define the perfection of God. He writes in verse 5 there, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Here John gives us a contrast. He admits the difference between darkness and light. In essence, he admits that there is good and bad, right and wrong, darkness and light in the world, in the universe. But while he admits this contrast, he tells his readers very specifically that God is light. In other words, God is good. God is right. God is holy. And in him there is no darkness at all. God is not darkness. God is not evil. He is not bad or wrong or wicked. Rather, God is the definition of perfection, of holiness, of truth, of sinless being. So then, by extension from what he told us of Jesus' eternal existence in verse 1, that that which was from the beginning, in verse 2, that which we proclaim to you, the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, in verse 3 of chapter 1, indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We also understand then that this statement in verse 5 of God being light without any darkness applies not only to the Father, but to Jesus, the Son of God, as well. John expresses the unity and perfection of God the Father and God the Son right here at the beginning of this letter. Well, this then will lead us back to where we last left off in this series of messages. Um, we had been looking at John chapter 2, verses uh, 18 and following in chapter 2. And in this section, uh, verses 18 through 28, uh, John has presented a fourth test of Christian faith. Now, this test is different than the first three tests that we re reviewed a minute ago in the first part of chapter 2. Those first three tests were of Christian fruit, the result of, the result of being in Christ. They are the way we walk about in our Christian life, um, that peripatomen, the way we typically deport ourselves or behave as Christian believer, believers. This fourth test, however, is not a test of Christian fruit. It's a test of Christian root. It's the basis or the foundation of Christian faith. So this fourth test is a test of Christian doctrine. It's a test about the deity of Christ. In this section, uh, starting at chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 18, through the end of that chapter, is fundamental. It's foundational to those first three tests. Without this test about the deity of Christ, the first three tests don't have any foundation to stand on. 
previous three tests to find the truth of Christian faith through action. They're practical tests. But this fourth test defines whether or not somebody can even claim to be a Christian in the first place. It's a doctrinal test, a test of what we as Christians believe. It's the basis of why John would even entertain the idea of those first three practical tests. And, and uh, upon this fourth test, the first three stand or fall. So we used the illustration last time about a tree and its fruit, and we can determine a lot of things about a tree through studying, it, studying its fruit. For example, we look at the health of the tree, we look at the kind of the tree, uh, and those things are evidenced by the kind of fruit it bears. But whatever kind of a tree it is, it can't be that kind of tree. It can't bear that kind of fruit unless it has the correct type of root, the correct genetics to be that kind of tree in the first place. So we judge a tree by its fruit, but more profoundly, we judge the tree by its root. An oak tree is an oak tree because it has an oak, oak tree's root. In other words, it's found by its foundational root, an oak tree. And so John the Apostle here in this section deepens our understanding of Jesus. He circles back, he repeats and deepens what he's already told us in the first four verses of this letter. He evaluates a person's belief of who Jesus is, and the result of this defines whether a person is a Christian or whether they are antichrist. Now turn a minute to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, verses... 13 through 17. <clears throat> Matthew 16, verses 13 through 17. And here's a conversation that Jesus had with his disciples. We remember, of course, that the Apostle John would have been included in that group. Verses 13 through 17 of Matthew 16. Now when Jesus came into this district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? He was asking them, what did people say about Jesus himself? And they said, the disciples said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. <clears throat> so this question that Jesus asked his disciples, Who do you say that I am, is really the basis of this fourth test that John presents to us in this section of the letter. The question is, who is Jesus? If we go back to 1 John, we'll read it, verse 18 of chapter 2 through verse 28. <clears throat> Children, it is the last hour, and just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar 
but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you will also abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. Now little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Excuse me. So John describes here two groups of people, those in the church and those who have left the church. He references both groups in verses 18 and 19. Clearly, he's writing to the group that has remained in the church, and he begins by calling them children. First part of verse 18, children, it is the last hour, and just as you have heard. So he's writing to that group that has remained in the church. And then uh, in the last part of that verse 18, he includes himself as part of the group to whom he is writing. He says, for this we know, from this we know, that is the last hour. And then in verse 19, he starts to draw those contrasts. They, the other group, the group that has left the church, went out from us. But they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown they all are not of us. Us and them, plural personal pronouns that define these two groups. Now, in large part, John uses verses 18 and 19 to define the nature of the group that has left the church. He calls them antichrists. He clarifies that although the antichrists had been in the church as apparent members of the body of Christ, they never really were truly part of the body, never in their hearts members of the church because they left. If they were true Christians, they never would have left Christ. They never would have denied him. And the difference has been made clear. They're leaving the church proves they were never part of it. In verses 20 to 23, he continues to define these two groups. In verses 18 and 19, he had defined the other group by what they had done. They had left the church. But in verses 20 to 23, that definition deepens, and he's able to define what they have done by by what they foundationally believe. It's that test of doctrine. He explains to those who remain in the church, the difference is what the two groups believe. Remember this fourth test, the doctrinal test that John gives us here. It proves the foundation of those outside the church as well. So he begins in verse 20 by saying, but you. He continues speaking to the group with which he includes himself, in other words, the church, and he says there's something that differentiates them from the group of antichrists. And this is clear by the word, but. Now we've said before that when we see that word, we need to stop and sit up and pay attention because it tells us something important tells us that the the opposite thing or an exception is about to be stated 
And so he tells us in verse 20 and 21, but you, the group that he's writing to, the church, you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I've not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. So in verse 20, John makes two statements about those who have remained in the church, those who are of Christ. One, they have received an anointing, and two, as a result of this anointing, they understand, they know the truth of who Jesus is. And then in verse 21, he says he has written to them because they know the truth and that lies don't come from the truth. No lie is of the truth. Now recall verse 5 of chapter 1. This is the message we, John and the other disciples, have heard from him, Jesus, and announced to you, the church, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So John can confidently tell them, tell the church, that since they have an, an anointing from the Holy One, the Holy Spirit, they can be sure it is of truth, that it is not a lie, because no lie is of the truth. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, there's no darkness in them, in them at all. They don't lie. So then, if Christians have received this knowledge of truth, which is not a lie, then the implication is that the people who have left the church do not have the anointing, do not know the truth. As a consequence, they believe a lie. In fact, that's exactly where John goes in verse 22. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. John defines in no uncertain terms what the Antichrists have been professing that Jesus is not the Son of God. One of the heresies of those days was a philosophy called docetism, and docetists denied that Christ had come in the flesh, or at most that he had come upon the man Jesus at his baptism but left him prior to the crucifixion. If, however, Jesus is not God incarnate, then ultimately there is no atonement for sin on the cross. Ultimately, the Christian faith is destroyed. Recall again, however, the statements that John started the letter with in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 1, that John and the other disciples in verse 1 have physical and intellectual evidence of that which was from the beginning. They touched him, they saw him, they heard him, and where it says they looked upon him, when you look at the Greek, it's really they contemplated him. So three physical sentence, senses and an intellectual contemplation of all that he said and did. And as he continues there in verse 1, that this thing that concerns the word of life. And the word for life there is the Greek zoe. And zoe, zoe, in the Greek means life, both in the physical sense, the present sense, and in the spiritual sense. In other words, a future existence. So they contemplated this thing that was from the beginning that was the word of life, the word of life was manifested to them. They saw it, they understood it, and they proclaimed it as eternal life that was with the Father. And then in verse 3 of chapter 1, they have fellowship with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, the word of life. John gives eyewitness testimony in these verses that God truly became man. So he's drawn the line between the two groups. He has defined the difference between the church and those who have left the church those in the church and the false teachers. 
In other words, between those who pr- proclaim Jesus the man as God and Christ and those who are antichrist, those who deny Jesus as God and Christ, those who are against Christ instead of Christ, opposed to Christ. And then he rephrases it all very succinctly in verse 23. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. There is the gospel. There is the doctrinal test, this important fourth test, which defines the basis of faith and belief for any practice or confession in the Christian life. The question is, who is the man Jesus? The answer is, he is God incarnate, the Christ who has made atonement for his people. Now, as John continues in verses 24 through 27, he presents what John Stott has called safeguards against heresy. We might ask, why has John spent all this time explaining these things to his readers? And in verse 26, he answers this. He says, these things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. The Antichrist left the church, but have continued to spread their lies, trying to deceive those who are still in the church, trying to deceive those who profess Christ. So in verses 18 through 23, John has given them theological detail to understand the problem. And now in verses 24 through 27, he gives them two lines of defense against the attack of the liars. He gives the first defense as a command in verse 24. The first part of that says, As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. And then he follows that with a promise in the second half of verse 24. If what you heard from the beginning beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and the Father. He tells them to abide, in in other words, to remain, to, to, to remember, to practice what they've told from the beginning, to abide in the gospel of Jesus Christ that has been taught to them since the beginning, since the ministry of Jesus, since the spread of the church through the known world, the message taught by all the apostles. He's telling them to abide in the word of God and that if they do that, they will remain in the Son and the Father. Stott says this, quote, What you have heard from the beginning is the gospel, the apostolic teaching, the original message which has been, pre- has been preached. It had not changed and would not change. They must see that it remains in them. It would not do so automatically. They must take steps to ensure that it does. Christians should always be conservative in their theology. To have itching ears, ever running after new teachers, listening to anybody, and never arriving at a knowledge of the truth is a characteristic of the terrible times which shall come in the last days, referencing 2 Timothy. And Stott continues, the continuous obsession for the latest ideas is a mark of the Athenian, not of the Christian, Acts 17.21. Christian theology is anchored not only to certain historical events, culminating in the saving career of Jesus, but to the authoritative apostolic witness and interpretation of these events. The Christian can never weigh anchor and launch out into the deep of speculative thought, nor can he forsake the primitive teaching of the apostles for subsequent human traditions. The apostolic testimony is directly directed essentially to the Son, and that is why it will keep them true to him if they remain true to it. Moreover, they will remain in the Son and the Father, 
in the sense of experiencing an intimate spiritual communion with both. To remain in God and to have God, verse 23, are virtually identical in meaning, end quote. So that's the first line of defense that John gives them. To let that abide in you, which you've heard from the beginning, the gospel of Christ. The second line of defense is found in verse 27, where he reminds them of what he first mentioned in verse 20. Verse 20 says, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. In verse 27, he expounds this and says, as for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. Now at first glance, here's, here's where you can go off the rails. At first glance, these verses could be misinterpreted by saying there's no need for teachers or preachers in the church. However, that's not what John is saying here. On the contrary, he himself is teaching them here. They have a need for a teacher. Remember as well what he said to them in verses 20 to 21. They know the truth, and it is because the Holy Spirit has anointed them to understand it. It's helpful here to recall what Jesus told his disciples the night before he was crucified. In the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verses 7 through 15, the night before he's crucified, Jesus says to his disciples, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Ian Hamilton makes this observation, quote, true Christians have been anointed by the Holy One, the Holy Spirit. As the spirit of truth, he indwells every, every believer, Romans 8, verse 9, giving us the knowledge of the truth, as John tells us in verse 21 here. When John says in verse 27, you have no need that anyone should teach you, he does not mean that Christians do not need spiritual teachers. The risen, ascended Lord has given the gifts of pastors and teachers to his church to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ, that being a quote from Ephesians chapter 4. Indeed, John is himself writing to instruct his beloved children in the faith. The point he is making is that true believers, indwelt by God's spirit of truth, do not need anyone to tell them how wrong false teaching is. They know that no lie is of the truth. Verse 21. Thus, the indwelling Holy Spirit sensitizes the child of God to spiritual truth and gives him an ability to discern error, error when it poses as truth. End quote. Then in verse 28, John speaks gently to them. 
As he has several times already in the letter, he addresses them as children. Now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. So he has commanded them and us in verse 24 to make sure that the gospel message abides in us, that we hold dear to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As Pastor Tucker often reminds us from Proverbs chapter 23, buy the truth and sell it not. The apostle has also promised his readers in verse 27 that the anointing from the Holy Spirit will abide in them and us, that will teach them and us about everything that is true and is no lie. And in verse 28, he encourages them and us to abide in Christ, to obey him, to love him, to serve him, to worship him, so that when he returns, we will be confident of who we are in him and have no reason to be ashamed. Are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Do you profess him? Not just as a mere man, but as God incarnate, the Messiah, Son of God, sent to save his people from their sins. Remember Matthew chapter 1, why he came to save his people from their sins? If so, then you have this instruction written by the Apostle John as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write. It's important to realize that John followed this instruction himself. When he was a young man, he became a disciple of Jesus, one of the 12 who Jesus called to follow him at the beginning of his ministry. But John wrote this letter to the church, to those who followed Jesus, the Son of God, when he was an old man, probably at least in his late 70s, more likely even in his 80s or even 90s. He was the last disciple to die, and he knew that most, if not all of the others, had been martyred for the name of Christ. He had even himself been exiled for a long time because of his claims of Christ. But he let abide in him that which he heard from the beginning, also, the anointing that he had received from the Holy Spirit of God had abided in him, and he abided in Christ. He was confident and had no reason to be ashamed. He had taught the, the church the same truth that he knew himself. Are you not a Christian? Do you deny Jesus as God and Christ? Or are you not sure? Are you only willing to say, well, he was a great teacher, kind man, one of many other prophets who tried to show us the way. Again, I urge you to look at what the Apostle John has told us in this letter. Remember the strong eyewitness testimony he gives us in the first five verses of the letter. We discussed those things in detail in the first couple messages in this series. We reviewed them a little bit today. John testifies in those verses not only on behalf of himself, but on half of the other disciples as well, all of whom had already died by the time that he wrote this. Ask yourself as well why all these men were willing to die for what they professed. Men will often die for what they believe to be true, what they know to be true. But almost never will they die for what they know is a lie. Read the four gospel accounts. If you're not a Christian, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, these are all accounts of Jesus' earthly ministry, and they complement each other. The accounts of his birth in Matthew and Luke give strong evidence for him being the Son of God. Many times in John's Gospel, Jesus refers to himself as God, as being one with the Father. We read some of that in John chapter 14 this morning. Study the Old Testament prophets and see how Jesus fulfills the prophecies of the coming Messiah. 
Whatever you do, you cannot limit it to saying that Jesus was a great teacher, a kind man, or a wise prophet. He himself said that he is God. A great teacher or a wise prophet would not do that if it were not true, because the telling of that lie would negate his authority as a teacher or a prophet. He wouldn't even be at all kind at that point, because he would be misleading all who heard him. At the very least, he would be a crazy man, if not a con artist. Con artist. Jesus e- is either the Lord, or a liar, or a lunatic. The whole of Scripture speaks to him as Savior. The, whole te- the Old Testament is repeat, replete with prophecies of the coming Messiah. The New Testament is replete with testimonies that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, God incarnate. Look to him today and trust him to be that. Trust him to have paid the price of your sin on the cross. John told us in the gospel, uh, John told us the gospel in 1 John chapter 2, verse 23. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Sarah, we're going to sing that last hymn one more time. As we think about that idea of abiding in him, of the spirit abiding in us, of us abiding in Christ, we know that he will hold us fast. We'll sing and then we'll be dismissed. 388? 388 it is in the black book.